few days ago, Steve McMichael, the former Chicago Bears defensive lineman, was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And for those who might not know, McMichael is in a really bad place. His body ravaged by ALS to the point where he can't talk, can't walk, can barely move. And after the Hall news was announced, a good number of journalists wrote pieces about McMichael, his life, his career, how the honor means so much considering where he is. And yet, not once did any journalist, nary a one, evoke the established connection between ALS and football. According to a 2021 study, NFL players are nearly four times as likely to develop ALS than the general population. And to me, it has to be a part of the story. It just has to be. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Taryn Kovach, an up-and-coming sports writer for a pair of Idaho newspapers, the Lewiston Tribune and the Moscow Pullman Daily News. This is episode number 351. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and your face looks like a bowl of cereal that's been left in the sun for too long. All right, Taryn, I had something happen the other day, and it made me think of you, which is this. I got an email from a kid who attends the University of Delaware, where I graduated from. Mm. And he's a senior and he's a journalism major. I'd never met him before, didn't know him. He wrote me this email and part of it was, do you happen to know of any jobs available at ESPN? Because I love ESPN. And I was <laughs> thinking, that's a really stupid letter. Number one, I don't know you. Number two, no, I don't know jobs at ESPN. But also number three, like ESPN is a hard climb. Like generally you're not just coming out of the University of Delaware at age 22 and landing a columnist gig at ESPN. And I was thinking in a lot of ways, you are a rarity in modern young person journalism, which is to say you write for the Lewiston Tribune in Lewiston, Idaho. You do preps, you do everything, you grind. You're not going to be on first take or anything like that unless maybe someone streaks across a high school game in Idaho. Like, that's not happening. Does it feel... Like you're doing it a different way than most people, most of your peers are trying to do it? Um, yeah, a little bit. Uh, I think that, you know, kind of some of the good things when it comes to this generation and, and you've talked to the, on this podcast a little bit is just kind of the ability to kind of do everything. Like everyone has a podcast, everyone has some kind of blog or forum that they post on and things of that nature. So kind of like you mentioned, just going out of college, starting part-time taking phoners mostly. And then now kind of, I say, quote unquote, moving up, I'm still doing preps, but you know, also uh, being on the LCSCB and writing on top of that, it, it has felt like kind of like a natural progression of things. And, you know, kind of everyone in the newsroom started that way. Uh, even Dale, who's uh, Dale Grummer, who's not even on the sports desk anymore. You know, he's been at this for decades. That's how he started. So it definitely does kind of have more of an old school and like natural progression feel to it. You're in college. It's 2022. Are you at all like the kid from Delaware who's saying, I really want to write for ESPN. How do I get to ESPN? Honestly, I was just ready to take whatever job or opportunity that was available to me. I mean, by the time I graduated, I had already been working part-time at the Tribune for two months. And, you know, that was kind of a, kind of a happy accident in itself. It just so happened that I was taking a class where it was 
you know, you work on your resume, uh, your cover leather and things like that. And my sports reporting professor, Don Shelton, he asked me, is there any place you want to direct this cover leather to? And I remember seeing that one of the Tribune's part-time writers, who's now the Idaho beat writer there, he had left. So there was that position available. So I was like, the Tribune seems like a good bet. So I had already gotten that opportunity. And by the time I graduated, you know, I wasn't really looking for anything else. I was, you know, already learning a lot and I think improving a lot in just a couple months I had worked there and I wanted to kind of keep that rolling. But I've been very lucky and, and, and privileged in my career so far that every time I've been looking for a job, which I think has been literally once or twice, I've got one. And even in the case for this current position I'm in, I wasn't even looking for a job. I was working at the Women County Gazette at the time. And I got called from a couple of people uh, at the Tribune saying this position was available and I, I took it. But yeah, I, I never was the kind of person when I was getting ready to graduate or when I graduated that said, oh, I want to work at LA Times right away or ESPN right away or The Athletic right away, mainly because I knew that just wasn't going to happen. But two, I was like, I want to get better as a writer before I my work is blasted in front of however many people. So yeah, I don't think I ever was had that kind of mentality. Most sports writers, especially sports writers of my age, at some point early in their careers covered preps. And when I was covering preps, you go to a game, you interview athletes, the coaches know who you are. The players are excited to have their names in the newspaper. Their mothers or fathers literally will cut the articles out of the paper, put it in a scrapbook. Preps felt very personal, but that was a pre-digital age. And I wonder for you covering preps, does it feel like the kids give a shit? Um, it, it definitely seems more like the parents and the families do more than the kids themselves. But I think it's more just kind of like a neutrality towards it. I don't think it's like, oh, they just don't care. And I also don't think it's kind of quite at the level it was, you know, a few years ago, uh, either when everyone was just so excited to have it in there. I think it's like a couple of them are excited. You know, you go talk to them after the game and they're like, oh, okay. And then they, you know, you ask your questions and some of them are, uh, it's a pretty local area. Everyone knows kind of like the better athletes here. So a couple of them, it might be not their first time doing this. So they're just like, okay, par for the course. This has happened before, but you mentioned the digital age. I mean, every time I mentioned the kid who got like a last second bucket or a critical hit or scored a touchdown, you know, it's always the family share it. So it always gets a bunch of likes. So there is still that, you know, kind of community and family support behind it. It's just kind of like in a different medium, but the kids themselves, it, I, I think it's more of like just a general neutrality more than anything. Do you care if people post your story on Instagram, if some 18 year old point guard is posting and he tags you or she tags you, does that do anything for you? Are you trying to get that at all? Yeah. It's not something I'm looking for, but it's, I'm not negative on the fact that it does sometimes happen. You know, what's nice is, um, and I'm not saying I'm anything, but every now and then sitting here all these years later, I mean, I'm 30 years older than you, you get an email or a text or something from some guy who's like, holy shit, you covered me in high school, or holy shit, I still have that article, or holy shit, my parents saved, blah, 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 I was looking at it, that's your byline, that's so cool. I don't know, do you feel a connective tissue at all with the people you're covering, with the coaches, with the players? Is there any sense of, I don't know, community spirit between journalists and subjects? Um, Yeah, and I think I mentioned how this is kind of a smaller knit community, kind of smaller town community, and I think that definitely helps. I mean, from 
when I was working at the Gazette, you know, every single night when we take phoners, I, the, the girls basketball coach still sends me texts of the box scores of the game just because she has my number and she and I talked, you know, a few times when I worked there. So, you know, there's kind of like that professional relationship that kept going. Same thing with uh, one of the boys basketball coaches in the area, same deal covered his team a lot and always sends me emails or sends the Tribune emails, uh, actually written in our style for box scores. So that makes things even easier. And then even going covering LC games now, uh, you know, there's a couple parents of some kids that I covered when I was at the Gazette and, you know, they, a couple of them said hi to me a few times. So there is a little bit of that connective tissue. I would say it's definitely feels more prevalent or it, it happens more often when you're kind of in those smaller town communities. But I, I would definitely say there's some connective tissue there. Yeah. Give me a basic sort of base outline of everything you're doing in the course of a week for the newspaper. So Mondays, Mondays are actually kind of like the one consistent day. Normally I come in and at, at the Tribune, we design our sports sections ourselves. We take our phoners and we write the stories. So uh, Mondays, it's kind of usually a light day. So I'll come in, I'll be on uh, the Moscow Pullman Daily News sports shift. So I'll be designing that section. Two newspapers, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Two okay. newspapers. And uh, answer phoners as they come. And then kind of the rest of the week, I'll have one day off somewhere in there, but I'll cover two to three games a week, you know, intermixed between preps and LC stuff, you know, whichever one it is, uh, maybe I'll throw a feature in there as well, or, and kind of, maybe there'll be another uh, pagination shift somewhere in there. I'll be on desk help some nights, which just basically means I just write my story and then help out with phoners or with our area roundup. And it's kind of very go, go, go. Uh, you know, you asked me before we started, when was the last time we recorded and when, when did I graduate? And I had to think about it for a minute because the days kind of bleed together. Yeah. I would say that's kind of a, kind of a typical week for me is three to four stories a week, a couple pagination shifts and answering phoners. All right. So wait, give me all the skills you need to have for the job you're doing right now. Yeah. So you need to learn how to use uh, InDesign. You need to learn how to use Neo, which I, no one at our office likes Neo, but you have what is to that? learn. It, it's just a kind of a filing database that is wonky all the time that no one likes, but you have to know if you work at the Tribune and uh, the different styles between the newspapers, because there are like a couple differences and you have to learn which schools are both uh, Tribune daily news area schools. So like you can cut things out of the log or the roundup between the two things and which ones are just DN and, you know, obviously the ability to work our uh, agate for our roundup stuff, which is basketball, wrestling, track pretty much every sport every high school sport you can think of then there is like the writing part of it uh obviously and the ability to drive uh roughly two hours uh within two hour radius any which way of the tribune to cover stuff but yeah yeah pagination and kind of like learning the differences in the styles between the newspapers like for my position was definitely the the biggest hurdle but once i got that down you know it was it's pretty easy to kind of like get into the rhythm of things. All right. So I have a story you wrote. It was the, the top of the sports section. Wildcats cut down loggers in white pine league action. And your lead mm -hmm. was over the course of the season, two teams have stood atop the white pine league division one, the potlatch loggers and the Lapwai wildcats. 
The loggers were perfect on the earth. The only blemishes for the Wildcats were losses to undefeated Baker and a loss to 5A opponent Rocky Mountain of Meridian. Lapwai prevailed 57-45 over Potlatch in the long-awaited game between the two on Saturday. The win gives the Wildcats sole possession of first place in the White Pine League. Here's my question I wonder about. Mm-hmm. When I was at, we'll just say like Sports Illustrated, even when I've had more time at different newspapers, but you show up a day early, maybe two days early, you sit down with the star point guard, you find out about the time their mother abandoned the family and the tattoo they have across their back that says, I hate my mom. And you write <laughs> a lead about, she still remembers the pain from the ink being applied to her skin. And you dive deep into it and blah, 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 blah. And you end up with this whole portrait. Mm-hmm. Local prep reporting does does not allow that, correct? There's there's very, very little leeway with it. Uh, not because the Tribune shies away from it necessarily, but just because kind of like what I mentioned before, it's very go, 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 go. And if there's stories like that, which there have been stories like that in the past where, you know, someone has, they're like pretty much local legends. Ken Hobart's kid, he coaches for three-time defending champions in the area. So that's something that we wrote a feature about. So there was something like that, but that usually comes separate from the actual game we cover. There, there sometimes is like a little bit of leeway with kind of telling someone's story and leaning it to the gamer. But just because we, we're constantly going and constantly moving, that's we have very little opportunities to do that. Again, not because no one wants to, but just because of the way things move. But most of the time, if there is a story like that somewhere, we'll slate that for you know a couple weeks out and we'll do what we need to do, talk to the people we need to, and kind of like work that story. And I mentioned, you know, on a week to week basis for me, I'll maybe have like one feature this week or like a couple weeks. And that's kind of true for everybody. When it, when it comes to the reporting on the game itself, usually we don't have the opportunity to do that. But if there is a story like that, we usually do find a way to get that done somewhere in the near future. I like how you name dropped Ken Hobart, former Canadian football mm-hmm. league and USFL non-star but correct me if i'm wrong former idaho quarterback yep that's right when you show up at a uh at a high school event and cover a game where are you sitting what are you writing what are you looking for so where i sit when it's football season i usually sit in the in the press box if the schools have one because some of them are you know small and it's kind of just kind of like these little stretches of grass and <laughs> intermittent with like a bunch of hills and stuff. But when there isn't like a press box, I pre- like basketball, I don't even like ask to sit at the scorer's table. I already sit in the stands and I usually sit on the away side of things. One, because there's kind of like more space to work and do stuff, but also I kind of get that dynamic of like being on one side of the crowd be, being able to hear stuff and also being able to see the home crowd and like those reactions. And when I'm like in that space, I try to listen to, you know, something that stands out, you know, beyond just complaining about the refs because everyone complains about the refs. And when it comes to like what I'm looking for in the game, well, if it's, you know, kind of closely competitive, like back and forth, I, I try to jot that down and keep track of like what happened as best as I can. But for the most part, I'm looking at things like, okay, like who's the best player on both team? How are the defenses playing that player? What whether the coaches' reactions to when a player does something or when they don't? What's like a player's reaction to a hard foul? Stuff like that. And one of my favorite pulls from the crowd, it actually didn't even happen at a prep game. It happened at an LC game. But LC, for those of us uninformed, is 
Lewis Clark State College. Yeah, it was it was kind of a physical defensive game, and someone from the crowd just shouted, "This isn't the WWE." I wrote that down, put that in the story, and that one that one made me laugh. And yeah, I, I've just kind of been putting more of a focus instead of like the kind of like the play by play stuff, just kind of like the reactions and some of the things I'm hearing and kind of X's and O's, not in the play by play way, but like, you know, what defense the team may be running, like trying to take away like a best player or something like that. And how's that working? You know, the runs in the game, how those happen instead of like, Oh, this happened. So I, I kind of just try and keep as open eyes and open ears as I possibly can. And there's been a couple of things I missed, which I'm, I'm kind of upset about. Like, I was very, very close to missing a buzzer beating shot because it was a back and forth game and I was busy writing it down. And I literally like looked up as the ball went into the hoop. So that close to missing it, but it's just kind of trying to keep track of as much as I possibly can, both on, you know, the playing field or the court or wherever, and also uh, what's happening like around it. And when the game ends, do you immediately go to the court and just grab whatever player or coach you, you need? How does that work? Yeah. So most of the time the coaches and the players like go immediately to the locker room, which gives me a chance to like take photos of the box scores or something like that. Cause we type our own boxes, but I'll, I'll always like hang around the gym and try and catch players and coaches as they're coming out of the locker room. Most of the time, even like the 7.30 games, like there's a bit of time between my deadline and when I have to start writing and when the game ends for me to like, I could just like wait there for half an hour if I want to and wait for people to come out. And most of the time there's like an assistant coach or an AD that's hanging around. I'm just like, hey, I need to talk to this person. I need to talk to this coach or this player. But yeah, I, I usually just hang around, get my interviews done and however long that takes. I think the longest I was at a game after the end, it was like 45 minutes just waiting. And the, the coach for his credit was very apologetic. He was like, Oh shoot. I didn't know you were here. I'm sorry about that. So, but yeah, I'll, I'll hand around to talk to whoever I need to talk to. And you have a laptop right there. Do you literally write the game story from the gym? So it, it just depends where I am. Like I mentioned two hour radius, either which way uh, last night I was covering a game and, in Pullman, which is about 50 minutes from Lewiston. And I mentioned the snowstorm that hit too. So that was a situation where I can't really drive back to the office. So I just parked somewhere, turned a hotspot on my phone and typed it up in my car. And I've had to do that a couple different places, but if the game's in Lewiston or Clarkston or within that 20 minute range of the, of the Tribune, most of the time I can just drive back and type it up in the office on my laptop. But there's been a couple of times where I've just had to, you know, turn on the hotspot and, and get to work. Are there still games where you keep stats? Yeah. Football season, uh, just because a lot of it's small town football and a lot of them don't keep track of our stats. We, we, we kept track of stats like all throughout football season with passing, rushing and receiving, which <laughs> there's a lot of eight man football. It's a lot of high scoring games. We, we had a, a 109 to three game at one point. If you're covering the game, you're doing like Smith eight yard run, Smith 12 yard run. Yeah. Thankfully we were not covering that game, but if we were, that was something we would have to do. Uh, one game I covered was 77 to zero and say, yeah, same thing. I had to keep track of stats and scoring plays for that. And I mean like stat stats. So like they had like eight running backs, like going over like 60 yards rushing. I kept track of all of that. So it's yeah. Football season. It can be, it can be a bit of a grind just because you, 
to have to keep track of like a thousand total yards of offense. But basketball, for the most part, they keep their scorebooks pretty well. Baseball, same thing. Same, uh, softball, volleyball, that's a thing like with kills and saves and digs and everything like that. We'll go off of like what the coaches tell us. But uh, yeah, th- th- there'll be like a couple of things like how many threes someone had in it and a half that I'll keep track of before I look at the scorebook. But for the most part during basketball and like the spring sports, uh, we won't have to football. We will. What would you say is more likely if you had to choose that your stats from the 77 to nothing eight man football game are 100% correct or that as we speak, aliens are harvesting earth. Probably the aliens. I mean, <laughs> it's uh, one game uh, where everyone was keeping stats was like the, the one AD two, uh, which is eight man football state championship game. And I kept stats, the coach kept stats and Idaho sports, which is kind of like the, the state prep account, like website at every state state has like, they kept, they kept stats. And I think there was like, a 15 yard to 15, 20 yard, like margin with the quarterback passing, like someone had a running back having like five more yards and the other person item had like two less than another person like receiving receiving was actually, I think we were all on the same page there, which was, I don't know how we had different passing yards, but the same receiving stats. Yeah. So, so there's going to be situations like that. And you just kind of have to like throw your hands up and like, I did my best dude. <laughs> I've actually never covered it. Never seen it. I know of it. Give me your best sales pitch for eight man football if you like high scoring high octane games that's that's the sport for you it's kind of like both kind of like an old-fashioned coaches offensive coaches like paradise and also just fun to watch if you like high high offensive games because there's three less players on the field so you can like i've seen the wing t offense run like at one school i've seen people literally go from I formation to four out wide receivers and like on the same drive and defenses. I mean, I mean, it's fun because you, you can't really load the box because there's half the field total between the edges that any running back can go into because there's less linemen and less players, but it's very, very fun. Like it's, you've seen like, you know, uh, seven man football or seven man flag football. It's, it's very similar to that, except just add the pads to it. And there's again, I mentioned like keeping the stats is hard because you're dealing with players that have like almost the entire field to run. And that's, that's going to be difficult to keep track of, but you'll see like a bunch of like different offenses and defenses that you thought you would probably never see again in an organized football game. And you'll also see a lot of scoring. And I think it's, I think it's a really, really fun sport to watch. Can you measure an eight man quarterback or an eight man running back can play at the next level based on any of his numbers in eight man football, or is it apples and oranges? It's kind of more eye test than stats because there are some quarterbacks in the area in the season that are like that impressive with the stats that, but the, but it's it kind of like stems from just how good they are. I mean, I, I think one quarterback we had committed to an NAIA school in Idaho for football, not Lewis Clark state, a different one. And one who kind of like got every state honor or league honor you can think of in the for 182 at quarterback had a really, really impressive season. You know, he's in the middle of his recruitment right now and we'll see what kind of interest he gets with things like eight man football. And even, even when you go like full 11, it's kind of like a lower classification. You do have to kind of like 
just go off the eye test in terms of, okay, like, well, how good is this player actually? And how much of it is it just like they're playing like a lower classification of sport? And it's hard to tell sometimes, which is why I'm happy I'm doing this and not one of the people who have to make those decisions for college programs. There, there's been some like really good athletes that have come through and uh, regardless of like what their future is, you know, I think just being that impressive on that level for those four years is still fun to watch and fun to cover. You wrote a piece that I really, really liked. It's my favorite thing I've read of yours. And it came out in uh, June of last year. Little robot has been an impressive series rookie. Subhead. <laughs> yeah. I was a robot who has been painting the lines on Harris field is set to become a mainstay for Lewiston's athletics. And your lead is there are many stars made during the Avista NAIA world series. Some players become known with miraculous layout grabs or moonshot home runs. Some coaches cement their legacies with deep runs or championships. But one of the biggest stars during the series hasn't been a player. It hasn't been a coach. It hasn't even been a human. It's been Giles the robot. Giles has been painting the lines before every single game of the World Series over the last week. And the machine has been capturing the fans' eyes before every game. As many as a dozen people at a time during any game have been pressed against the foul net, hoping to take videos of Giles. Some people have expressed statements such as, that's so cool, or that's pretty high-tech right there. It's this really sort of lovely piece about Giles the Robot at the NAIA World Series. Why'd you write about Giles the Robot? It was just something fun. Like, that was really what it was. It was a brand new thing. Historically, the groundskeepers during the World Series, they're all volunteers. It's all done by them. So, like, seeing just, like, this random robot kind of stroll on out there was a completely new thing for everybody. So everyone was like fascinated by it. And they were like, Oh, when they get that when that, so like I, those quotes, I like just jotted them down and kind of, kind of just walked around the stadium for a little bit and jotted them down, but it was fun. It was just a fun thing to write about. And that was really like the crux of it. And I'm so happy you picked that one. Cause that's one of the favorite things I've written too. And I actually got to drive the robot. Oh. Uh, when I was like talking to the guy for the story and it's, it was like, just like an RC car. It was a, it was an app on the iPad. You moved it like an RC car. It, it controlled like one. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And I, I was like, okay, this is just going to be a fun little story on this robot, like how they bought them or whatever. But then it turned out to be like, oh no, this is a community thing. Like there was like this whole process of like making the funds or donating the funds to get this robot and to like program it with all these different things. So it can paint like all over the community. And you know, the world series is, is one of those events where you look back on it fondly after it happens, but when it's happening, you're kind of miserable because that? last games at like 12 ends at like 1230. So you have five minutes until deadline. You might not get quotes. You might, there's as many as five or six games in one day on top of the gamers, there's the sidebars, there's the features, there's talking to the, co- to the coaches, you know, that have been there before. There's talking to like brand new people who may or may not be super willing to talk to you. In my experience, most of them are, but that has happened before. And it's, it's just like very go, 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 go of you may cover a game at the beginning of the day, go back to the office, type it up, help read whatever bits of the pages have been, finished, approved, and then go back to cover another game and same thing. So in the midst of all that chaos, and it was my first World Series 2 or my first time actually covering stuff. So it was, you know, I was kind of like going on the fly as well. And, you know, my team, my beat was in it. So that that was kind of added to the to the pressure a little bit. So being able to just take a step back and write the, like this fun little feature on this 
wine painting robot that everyone was just kind of like oohed and awed by. It was a lot of fun and kind of like a good break uh, in the midst of all that. You're in a smallish market, not being critical. You're in a smallish market. You're yeah. writing about largely NAIA and high school athletes. Are there ever times when you feel like people don't want to talk to you? For the most part, I think people are always in, but there's, you know, everyone has bad days where they don't want to talk, you know, tough loss or maybe a, a good player who just had an off night or, you know, maybe one of our area coaches was unfortunately on the wrong side of, you know, a however, however much of a blowout. So there, there's been a couple of times where like, I could tell they don't want to talk to me, but no one, when I worked at the Gazette, there were a couple of people who told me no, but I don't think there's been anyone at the Tribune who has straight up told me no, not right now before, or, hasn't like gotten back to me. Like I I missed a coach like after a game and he called me on the bus like 10 minutes later. So I think for the most part, everyone's willing. It might just be like a bad day of like, they don't necessarily want to, but for the most part, they still will. I don't think anyone's like straight up told me no. You wrote a column last April, dissecting the problem with LCSC baseball. And uh, your lead was Lewis Clark state college has the best baseball program at the NAIA level. And it's really not much of a debate. The Warriors have more national titles than anybody, and their home field hosts the NAIA World Series. It's become such a formality at this point for the program to win the regular season Cascade Conference title and cruise to the World Series. And yet, this season, that's not the case. Something has happened that's as rare as a four-leaf clover or meeting someone who remembers what Betamax is. LCSC baseball is dot, 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 decent. Not great as the norm, just decent. When you kind of write this piece about the disappointment of Lewis and Clark baseball, mm-hmm. it's definitely not a harsh column, but it's a somewhat critical column. Yeah. Let's say Lewis and Clark was like three and 15. Could you write a column calling the head coach to be fired? Could you write a column saying the starting pitcher is a choker who doesn't belong at this level? Could you, could you take shots? I think I could, but I don't know if I would necessarily want to. And I think for one part, that's just like my general personality. Like if I think something's bad to the point of like someone needing to get dismissed or a lineup needing to be fixed or whatever, I'll say it. But if they were like that bad, like three and 15 bad, I think my focus would be less on this coach needs to be fired or these players need to be sat on the bench or, you know, this guy needs to be taken out of the lineup. It would be more so on like what went wrong. Because that in that context, if they did go three and fifteen that season, that was a team that made the World Series just in World Series championship game, and they had to replace a lot of players. So I'm like, okay, well, they've had to do that a few times. So what went wrong this time? And that would be more so my focus of like, oh, this is awful, blow it all up, like fire this person, bench that person, and in that column, it was actually funny. I wrote that column and and they still ended up making the championship game that year and losing by one run. So I mentioned how kind of like the problem is they're losing more close games than they had the previous year and they were young and they were injured. And then lo and behold, once they got healthy and once they had everyone in the lineup and people started to get more experience, they averaged 10 runs a game during the, during the postseason, And then you know, one error, one run from winning the championship. So taking that kind of approach to things of like how things got to a point instead of like being reactionary towards stuff that that's kind of like my general approach to columns. 
I think I sent you another one on like the PAC 12 and that was kind of like the approach I took too. It wasn't like, Oh, uh, George Klyovkov needs to be fired. Like these AD should be ashamed of themselves. It was like, how do we get to the point of like them almost being a 16 team super conference to being almost not existing anymore? That's kind of like the general approach I take with column writing. Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who loves two things, Royal Retros and We Are the World. We can't go on pretending day by day. Oh boy. That's someone, somewhere, will make a quality 1984 Memphis Showboats Walter Lewis jersey. Are we doing this again? We are all a part of God's great big throwback sports fan base. Ugh. And the truth, you know, RoyalRetros.com is all you need. I can't. You don't care about the starving children of Ethiopia, do you? You wrote a piece uh, last month. Satara Bird is carving her legacy at Lewis Clark State College women's basketball team. Subhead, former team MVP, has become one of Warriors' top players. Lead, when Satara Bird's senior year at Gonzaga prep ended, it wrapped up a highly decorated four years. Bird had been a two-time Washington Class 4A all-grader Spokane lead selection, was the GSL's leading scorer her senior year, was a league scholar-athlete, was team MVP, and was featured several times in local Spokane media. And yet, no college has offered her. Bird had been going to basketball camps since he was a kid with her twin sister, Shania. Some of those camps were hosted by former longtime Gonzaga prep coach, Mike Artie, who coached Bird during her high school career. Bird's energy and competitive drive was evident from her time as a child at Artie's camps, which showed all the way through high school. She was one of those players that played with tremendous effort and tremendous determination, Artie said. Her senior year especially, we played her out of position. She was our post. She was our big girl. At most points, we had her down with her back to the basket. In high school, you get what you get. And Satara was probably our best person who could score in the post, even though she wasn't a post player. So we made her that part of the offense her senior year, and that's when she led the league in scoring. And yet, no college had called. Bird was faced with the reality that a lot of high school athletes face. Her organized sports career was over. Artie speculated that maybe the reason was her playing as an undersized post. And then it's this piece about her going on to play, Lewis and Clark State, blah, 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 blah. I don't even know how this works. Like you, you're going to do this piece. You decide I want to do this piece about Tara Bird at Lewis and Clark State. Do you call the university? Do you, is there a sports information director you're calling and you say, I want to focus on this young woman and blah, 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 blah. How does that actually go about? Yeah. And, uh, you know, that, that's been one thing that's made my beat pretty easier is the SID over at uh, LCSC. She's been really, really helpful kind of with any feature, any kind of like longer form thing that I've been wanting to do like getting players after the game and yeah it was pretty much as simple as i just told her like hey i want to do a feature on on sitar can i talk to her and coach orlandi and then talking to art it was just i sent a sent an email up to gonzaga prep and they gave me his number and we had a conversation about that it was getting the actual like interviews together was fairly easy it was kind of like the the stories that uh, like I got from the interviews that was kind of like the more interesting to kind of like focus on because I like to talk to like high school coaches or you know whatever people who've coached them before college before I talk to the athletes and the and the college coaches because you know I might learn something that I didn't know before from just talking to someone who knew them from a younger age but yeah in terms of actually getting p- people together for interviews it's always been fairly simple I just messaged the SID saying like hey can I talk to these people this weekend for the most part, unless they're on a road trip or something, it's always just been smooth sailing. 
All right. I'm going to ask a somewhat slightly critical question. Mm -hmm. It's a young writer thing. I think you have the big quote there, like you good lead, 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 lead. And then this long ass quote from the coach players, tremendous effort, senior year, blah, 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 blah. I personally, as I've aged, get away from quotes. Someone told me, I think when I was at SI, someone said, you can say it better than they can. And I wonder, uh, you're, how old are you? 25. Do you still feel like at this point in your career, you need quotes as sort of a crutch a little bit to help you get from point A to point B? I've definitely started to move away from it. I think the first year or e- even year and a half of me writing professionally, I definitely exactly what you said, used quotes as a crutch a little bit. I think in that story, uh, I I see what you're saying. And I definitely think that kind of like that lawn quote there kind of like took away from the flow of the story a little bit. But I think the reason why I used that quote specifically and kind of like in its entirety and didn't like abridge it was because just because it kind of like highlighted the situation she was in her senior year. And I think my mindset was like, okay, I'll use this quote here and then I'll talk about, you know, what he said further in my own words of like, are you speculating she didn't get recruit because she was undersized? And I think that way I was able to maybe abridge or like take out me talking about her being the leader, lean scorer as a post. And instead I was able to put that quote in and in my own words, explain like that was why she didn't get recruited. And then Later in the story, I, I, in my own words, like mentioned how coach already got the call from the LCSC coach to like get Satara in. And I didn't use his quotes for that. I used my own words for that as well. So I think that I just like was more selective about where I wanted to use the quote and where I didn't, but looking back on it, I think that you're probably right. And I could have done that for something later in the story instead of kind of like disrupting the flow like that at the beginning. Wait, let's get super nerdy here. And I just want to say, and I'm being sincere. We recorded this a year ago. Mm-hmm. Your writing has improved a thousandfold. Your stuff is really freaking good. And it is, I remember like reading your beginning. I was like, oh, it's kind of like a young writer, like a thousandfold. And this is a really good story. Let's take this quote. Let's be super nerdy. Okay. Mm-hmm. To me, if someone says to me, like, Sitar is one of those players that played with tremendous effort and tremendous determination, like, yeah, that's okay. That's not amazing. It's okay. I assume yeah. playing college basketball, she probably played with effort and determination. But what I don't like, again, I'm not being critical of you. I'm saying like, <laughs> like her senior year, especially we played her out of position. She was our post. She was our big girl. I'm not really a fan of quoting stuff that is informational. Like you can yeah. say in the article, you know, as her, as a senior, she was played out of position because of size, blah, 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 blah. You know, like, at most points, we had her down with her back to the basket. Like all that stuff is like factual material that doesn't really need to be said in a quote because it's not mm-hmm. a it's actual fact. She was played down low. She was the biggest girl on the team, blah, 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 blah. So that's my main thing with quotes. Like I'm not a fan of like information. Um, yeah, I, I definitely see what you mean. And and now that I'm thinking about it, that you're bringing this up. I mentioned like not using the quote of him speculating that that's why she didn't get recruited. Maybe I should have just flipped that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. hundred percent. But this is a really good story. Are you too young in your career to have a best confrontation? Oh, I I don't know if I've had like a straight up confrontation, but I've had like a few people. So one game I was taking a photo of the, um, the scorers book. And I guess the, the person doing the scoring was a parent and 
the parent went to me and she said something kind of loud. There's the boys game coming up. So like the whole crowd was still there and they told me something I didn't hear. And then I was like, excuse me. And they're like, you're not going to take any more pot shots of their kids. Are you? And I was like, what? And then they were like, oh, they had an off night. That's low. And there was like 0.5 seconds of confusion in my head. And I, I think this highlights like probably the lack of tact I generally have in situations like this of being confronted. But I was like, that wasn't low. Like matter of fact, like that, that wasn't low. And then I went on to say, I was like, the player had an off night. Everyone had off nights. I didn't say they were bad. I didn't say they were horrible. I just said it was an off night. And then that whole interaction ended with them saying, oh, well, agree to disagree, but I see where you're coming from. I'm like, okay, I take a photo of the scorebook and then I walk out and I'm just like, what the hell just happened? That was the most polite and weirdest confrontation I ever had. And then um, this one wasn't in person, but I wrote a story at the beginning of the basketball season. And at one point in it, I mentioned kind of like the physical nature of both teams were playing. And I say on a different night, both teams could have been in the bonus. That was the exact line. I didn't say the refs were bad. I didn't say the refs should have been called. I just said with a different crew, some of the calls might've been different. And I get an email from the, one of the district basketball commissioners And in that email is three articles about the kind of like national referee shortage. And in it, he says, since you want to be part of the problem instead of part of the solution from that one line. And I'm like, okay, like that. And I guess he's known in the office as kind of a cranky dude because every other sports writer has gotten an email from that. And there's even been a couple of non-sports people that have gotten that email. So once I knew that afterwards, I was like, okay, that's, that's a little bit better, but those have been a couple, again, I don't even know if they qualify as confrontations, but very confusing things to, to go through. I have a good question for you. We talk about this a lot in my house. I'm the dad of two kids. One is a college, uh, college junior. The other is a high school senior. And this is going to sound cranky, get off my porch old manish, but I'm cool with that. I just feel like young people are really, really soft. I feel like they can't take criticism. They need to be coddled. I see it a lot with like my kids and their friends and the generation and, oh, are you okay? And oh, blah, 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 blah. You cover young people. You are a young people covering young people. Is that just me being an old man or do you see that? Well, actually I have a funny story about that from when I was in college. So I mentioned the sports reporting class I was taking and it was taught by Don Shelton, who used to be the Seattle sports- Times sports editor. Yes. Again, I mentioned how lucky and privileged I was earlier. Like that guy taught me in college, but the way he ran the class was kind of similar to a newsroom, except because it's a college course, there was like our stories were able to have drafts of stuff. And the first couple times I submitted different stories to him on the first draft, I think when I got them back, they were more red than black and white. But, you know, I, I never took that personally or, or as him saying my writing was terrible because it was never just like, nope, this is bad. It was like, this is, this is a good idea. Here's how you can make it better. And I took that and I ran with it. And that's how I've been, how I usually deal with criticism. Now, part of that's also knowing who to take criticism from, you know, a, a random person on Facebook telling me I suck. I don't, I don't care about that. But some other people in the sports reporting class did not like 
that their writing was getting marked up that bad. And I was just confused by that reaction so much because I'm like, if there is one person that you should listen to regarding this stuff, it's the guy who worked at one of the biggest Metro dailies for decades. And there was definitely kind of, I feel like kind of that, you know, sensitivity or maybe it was a generational theme, but maybe it was like kind of more on the, on the lines of like, they just never had someone be that critical before. But even then, like with the criticism, it was like, it, it was always meant for the intention of stuff getting better. And I think in my case, I'm not excluding myself from this at all. When I first started like getting emails and stuff or comments of people complaining about my writing or being like mad about something, I didn't reply necessarily, but I did definitely take that a little more personally than I should have. Now that I've been doing this for a couple of years, the only things I'm really like, kind of like raise my eyebrow at are things that are just like objectively untrue. I mentioned before, someone sends me an email saying this was terrible or someone posts a comment on Facebook saying like my writing sucks. I'm like, I, I don't care. But I, I definitely think in, in some cases, definitely not all, there's been situations in just my career and my learning experience that have been like, okay, you need to not be so, as you put it, soft. And uh, I, I definitely think it's, um, there's some cases of that, but I think that a lot of the people around my age who are really, really good at this job have learned to just kind of like roll with the punches a little bit. Yeah. Let me see a final question here. Mm-hmm. Um, as we speak, you are sitting in very cold weather with snow and ice all over the place. And mm-hmm. as we speak, oranges are growing on a tree outside my house. <laughs> <laughs> I am, uh, I'm a liberal Jewish native New Yorker who hates Trump, hates ice, hates snow. Mm-hmm. Sell me on why I should move to Idaho. Gosh, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I have a good pitch. Um, honestly, if you can get in a place to where you only have to go into town, like marginally, like to the supermarket or the get gas or something. And you're kind of in a place that's, you know, like a, a cabin, like, cause there's a lot of really nice log cabins up here, like that are built in the woods somewhere or like on a lake, a couple of the lakes we have or along the river. It's a very, very beautiful place to live. And I, and I preface that by avoid as many people as you can, because as much as Idahoans like to complain about California drivers, I've been on the road, uh, either as a passenger or driver with other Idaho drivers for 25 years. Yeah. Californians aren't the problem. So, <laughs> so if you could go in a place surrounded by nature, it's, it's very, very nice, especially in Northern Idaho, the, that whole Pacific Northwest, but don't live in Boise. <laughs> That's my recommendation. Throwing shade at Boise. Yeah. I hate it. <laughs> you have my word. My family and I would not be moving to Boise, Idaho. Good to hear. Well, listen, seriously, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having the patience with me to do it again. I just think you're doing great work. And I think I love seeing writers, young writers, just like grow and grow and grow. And clearly like you've taken a very righteous and correct path in your career. And uh, I have high expectations. So I appreciate you doing this. Thanks so much for doing this, Jeff. Really appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Taryn Kovach, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Taryn on Twitter at Taryn underscore Kovach. Check out his work in the Lewiston Tribune and the Moscow Pullman Daily News. 
If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding.